Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today is episode 86.5, which is a special episode for the fifth Wednesday of this month. You can find a complete transcript and a list of all the books mentioned today linked in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Now, as many of you all know, though I live in South Carolina, I am an Ohioan. And when I moved down here, uh, people would ask me, oh, where are you from? And I would say, Ohio. And then they would say, oh, Cleveland. And I had to let them down. No, I'm indeed not from the most famous city in the state. I am from the opposite end. Uh, but Recently, I've been thinking about my native state and how I rarely see it in books. And when I do, it's typically in a book about road trips. And the people who are in the car are incredibly bored by the great landscape and cannot wait to get out of the state of Ohio. And this has been really disheartening to me over the years because I have to agree with native Ohioan Toni Morrison when she writes in Beloved, in Ohio, seasons are theatrical. Each one enters like a prima donna, convinced its performance is the reason the world has people in it. To me and to other Ohioans, Ohio is beautiful and it has so much rich culture and heritage. And that also got me thinking about the Midwest in general and the heartland and the Western United States, how oftentimes in our conversations about the United States, they're often referred to as flyover states or flyover country, which is a really derogatory term if you think about it. So over the course of the next year or so, I would like to do some special episodes featuring uh, these areas of the United States that are often overlooked or, or not seen for the glorious states that they are. So today we are going to be looking at the Midwest, specifically Cleveland. So later in the show, I'll be talking to Elise Colette Goldbach, whose memoir Rust recently came out from Flatiron. In her memoir, Elise talks about what it was like for her to work in the steel mill, which Cleveland is famous for. She talks about what it was like to go from being in grad school in academia to working a blue collar, air quotes, job, and what it was like to be in that kind of very different environment than what she was used to and what it was like being a woman in a very masculine field, we might say. But first up, I'm going to be talking to Rachel Ann Jolie, whose memoir, Rust Belt Femme, recently came out from Belt Publishing, which is an indie press based in Cleveland. And her memoir tells the story of her life growing up as a working class woman in Cleveland and how that got her where she is today as a woman with several degrees, including a PhD, and she now lives in Minneapolis with her partner. I couldn't have been more honored and thrilled to be able to talk to uh, these women today. And to round out the show, at the end, I'm going to be talking to our very own Sachi Argerbright, who grew up and currently lives in the Cleveland area. So if you're from Cleveland, I hope you enjoy your special episode today where we're celebrating all things Cleveland. But if you're like me and not from the area, I hope you enjoy learning more about it. So let's get the show on the road. So first up is my conversation with Rachel Angeli, the author of Russ About Femme. Well, uh, Rachel, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today to talk all about Cleveland. Thank 
you. Me too. So I thought we would start with a little bit of broader ideas about the Midwest, since a lot of people aren't from there and aren't very familiar. What are some, I guess, maybe some misconceptions or assumptions about the Midwest or the Rust Belt that people might have for those who aren't familiar with the region? I think the biggest misconception is that there is one monolithic culture or sort of identity or predisposition that the Midwest has that makes us you, you know, sort of monolithically distinct from other regions. And, and I think that's like where I want to start, because even though I can, and I, and I will sort of mention some things that, um, that may be distinct from other parts of the region in some aspects, I think it's first important to start by saying you will find the same kind of diversity in the Midwest that you would on the coasts. You will find very smart people in the Midwest in the same way that you would on sort of the coasts. And for people outside of the U.S., there is this sort of like regionalism of like, oh, the coasts are where smart, cool people are. And the Midwest is where this just like mass of corn farmers live. And so that I think is like the first place to start is that there is so much rich cultural, um, cultural diversity, racial and class, diversity, you know, all the kinds of diversity that exists in the Midwest. But in terms of those stereotypes, yeah, I think there's this pr- pr- assumption that everybody's a farmer, um, that nobody's educated, uh, and that we are the region that caused Trump, which is you know, not not true. <laughs> so those are big misconceptions that uh, that feel important right away to sort of name. Yeah, I, I think the Midwest, like Appalachia, got a lot of um, parachute journalism after the 2016 election. And I saw so many think pieces on Appalachia and the Midwest since I grew up like right at the border between the two. Mm-hmm. And it was so incredibly frustrating for me. And I read uh, a lot of other pieces by Midwesterners and Appalachians. And I realized that one of the most frustrating things was that no one was actually letting Midwesterners tell their own stories. Uh, So why for you as a writer of a memoir, uh, is it so important for Midwesterners to be able to, you know, tell our own stories? I definitely agree with the um, that sort of parachute journalism being really frustrating. Um, and I know I'm, I think you've had Elizabeth Cat on too, who wrote "What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia," and I really resonate a lot with the sort of mission of people like Elizabeth and many other writers, some of whom I know you'll have on this during the series, to to allow to allow a story of some of the to to thwart some of the stereotypes, basically. So for me. Um, a lot of my book is about class and because the Rust Belt in particular is also very associated with industry, which is true, um, there is a lot of industry in the U.S., uh, or rather in the Rust Belt, um, but, I th- but I think that there is a lot of sweeping over of what that means, like the sort of like, oh, that means like it's like white male factory workers that go work in the steel mill and that's that. And it's a troubling stereotype of the working class because the working class is disproportionately women. The working class is disproportionately um, not white um, when we think about people who are struggling economically. And so as a person who was raised by a single mom who saw her work in these sort of service industry jobs and newspaper delivery and all of these other sort of jobs that exist, again, all over the country, but I got to see it through this sort of like industrial struggling city landscape, I think that it helps, it helps remind people that, that it's not just like these bored white dudes that go and build cars or something. (laughs) I have just so many images of like, (laughs) 
all of the ideas that people had and they would go and they would go interview uh, coal miners or whatever. And they would do like those new spots. And I was just like, right. no, go to the Dollar Tree, you know, like. <laughs> right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. The Dollar Tree. Very <laughs> intimately familiar with the Dollar Tree. That is where <laughs> that is where my working class life happened a lot. Yeah. <laughs> So in your introduction, like you already mentioned, you talk a lot about class in your memoir, and you describe yourself as a class straddler. What is a class straddler, and how does that affect the way that you see the world? Yeah, so I got that term from a therapist, which I think is already telling because it means I sort of have access and, you know, time and money and healthcare to have a therapist. What it means to me is that a lot of times you'll hear these sort of rags to riches story, like she grew up poor, and now she has a PhD and, you know, a nice apartment and can whatever afford to shop at Whole Foods, even though I have a lot of problems with Whole Foods. And even though that is my story, like everything I just said is true, um, I really didn't want to tell that story because I think those rags to riches stories really uphold capitalist myths that we can all just sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, which of course is not, is not the case. And that's also, even though on paper, you know, not, a, not in a book length memoir on paper, but just sort of the list of what my life looks like on paper. Um, it kind of looks like I did that, but it's just, it's just not true that if you grow up poor, that when you have financial stability, sort of whatever that means, you know, relative to your, to your early life, that you're not, you're never not impacted by the, the poverty of your early life or the class conditions of your early life. And that shows up a lot of times in trauma, having economic scarcity in a capitalist system is traumatizing. And so, you know, I have been diagnosed with PTSD, complex PTSD because of somewhat related to poverty as well as some other things. Um, that happened in my life. So that already means that you're you're never sort of like from what it means to be poor. And another thing, um, sort of on a less dark side, because that's not fun, you know, trauma, obviously that's not like a good thing. But there's also, as I was writing this book, I mean, so much of the book is how grateful for I am, um, how grateful I am for rather. Growing up in, in, a, in a working class community, my early life was um, very much what people would stereotype as sort of like white trash living. My dad raced stock cars and worked on cars and people swore and were tattooed and just, you know, every sort of aesthetic marker, you know, Tiger King is really big right now. Like Tiger King reminded me of home a little bit. So those aesthetics, um, I actually, you know, I grew up as I, you know, as I sort of climbed my way into educational access, you know, went, got, went into a lot of debt, but did go to college, um, a four-year liberal arts college, and then went on to get a PhD. And the sort of further up I got, the more I understood that I was no longer in a world that, that, um, that I, that I understood, you know, I was being introduced to people who had wealth that I had no idea even existed. And just the sort of ease and access that I started to have in my life that was so unfamiliar, you know, so foreign to what, to what I grew up with, um, and getting really angry that, that things got so much easier, um, even with just a little bit more, not even certainly in grad school, I had a lot of, picture of what it meant to, to be middle class and upper middle class. Even though as a grad student, you're usually making below the poverty line. I was making, I think, $14,000, but I was still being treated as though treated much differently than how my mom is treated, for example, just given, given, you know, what I was, how I was talking, where the spaces I was now existing in. And so anyway, that, um, having to navigate that and negotiate that, um, is, 
is what that sort of metaphor of straddling uh, comes from, because it's like I never didn't feel like I was also simultaneously um, it never, it never felt natural, right? Like existing still to this day, you know, it doesn't feel comfortable when I'm in sort of up, upper middle class or upper class spaces because that's just not, um, how I grew up. So that straddler, uh, metaphor is like, you're, there's always a foot in both. I really love that term because that's, that's how I feel. I live my life. Yeah. And I remember I was talking to a coworker after, after grad school and she was talking about buying a planner and it was $40 for a pocket planner. And I was like thinking, <laughs> she's like, what do you think of this planner? And I'm like, why on earth? I get those free from like when I buy my checkbooks. Like, right. <laughs> I was so confused, but I knew that that's not what I was supposed to say. I was supposed that's to say, it. oh, that's cute. You know, like. Totally. And yeah. I, I will walk down some streets and the houses are so nice and I feel physically smothered. Yeah. Because um, I, I know I, I'm not supposed to be there. Yeah. Like, that's not. And uh, so many parts of your book, I was just like, yes, like. This is the description of what it's like to try is when you go and you go to school and you find yourself in new places. You're like, but I don't feel like I belong here still. Right, right. exactly. Uh, but I, there's also a lot of complications when you go back as well and you go see family and friends who are still in those working class spaces. For you, you now live in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. um, so when you go back home, what is that like? And what are the difficulties of maneuvering those spaces being that you have kind of one foot in both places? Yeah. I mean, that's another space that I like. I feel like I want to like complicate also the narrative that it's like, nobody from my working class life like understands how I talk because I have a PhD and like to sort of like, there are actually some ways in which it's not difficult at all because my mom is super smart, even though she didn't graduate from high school. Like, you know, I can have a conversation with her, um, in a similar way. I can have conversations with my friends in, in Minneapolis. So in some ways I want to like push against that it's super hard all the time, but then also I, I it's been, it's been very difficult to go back and, be reminded of, for example, that my, my mom is still, um, is very, very low income. And, uh, we, as I talk about in the book, there were times when we were as low income as she is now. And there were other times when she had like a stable job and then we would dip back down again. So it was a little bit of a roller coaster. But when I do go back home, um, and I'm reminded of what it was like to, to, you know, have to only put, um, the amount of gas in the car that she actually has physically like in her wallet, as opposed to that was a big, that's a big one for me. And I, if, if I go home, I'm like, please mom, let me fill up your gas tank. And she's like, it's fine. I'll just put $7 and 56 cents in. Cause that's what I have now. And then I'll, you know, next paycheck I'll, I'll put however much I can afford after that. And just these moments of like being reminded of how difficult it is to be poor and, and how, and how much easier it's been since I've not been in that, in that sort of economic bracket. So that is the painful, that's the stuff that is challenging is like that painfulness of like, all of a sudden I now have a, a decade now, at least uh, over a decade, probably well, about a decade since I've been actually having sort of full-time income, although that's been on and off because of academia, but <laughs> um, relatively had access to this sort of different class life, you know, that I, that you become so comfortable with it. And so when I go back home and I'm reminded 
of how uncomfortable it is. There's, I mean, I can feel that physically in my body and it makes me, it puts me in that like sort of, I want to save my mom mode. And that, as I know from being formerly being poor and I can see it in her too, like she doesn't want to be saved. It's it's difficult for her to, you know, for me to just sort of swoop in. Um, and that's another thing that I think that my personal experience has helped shape my politics because I also believe like the solution isn't like charity from do-gooding rich people or philanthropy even from do-gooding rich people, that it's like actually sort of a, a challenge to the entire capitalist system that would create conditions for somebody who works so hard and still has so little, little to show for. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. Uh, I was recently reading um, a book I hated, which I won't <laughs> name, but they were trying to answer the question, how on earth working class people remain poor? And they were doing everything under the sun besides <laughs> addressing the overarching system like, oh, you know, they suffer from addiction oh, or whatever. I was like, they do realize you can do everything, air quotes, right, and still be poor, right? Like it has nothing to do with that. And so I just ranted about it to like my spouse and all of my friends. And thankfully they're not going to read it now. I was like, I sacrificed for (laughs) I read it. So you don't have to. Thank you for your service. Yeah. You can off air, you can maybe, yeah, tell me. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so infuriating because this on this, yeah, you can do everything right and still end up you know, in economic scarcity, or on the flip side, you can do literally everything they probably listed addiction, break the law, like all of these things. But if you have money, you're not going to be criminalized in destitute, you know, in conditions where you can't feed your family, et cetera. So anyway, that's enraging. (laughs) Very, very much so. So talk a little bit about where you're from. This episode in particular is about Cleveland. And I really loved your introduction. And I I marked it up within an inch of its life, I think. But (laughs) I really like a section here on page 11. And you say, this story then is about growing up in poverty in rural Ohio, finding hope in the alternative culture I discovered in Cleveland, and how my complicated love for these people and these places is a tenacious part of everything I've done since leaving it. Uh, And I really loved how there are these little sections where you're, it's like a love letter to Ohio. Mm. And as someone who grew up in Ohio, though a different part of the state, um, and has left it, I felt a deep connection to this. On the last part of your introduction, you say, and I think that indelible resilience reminds me of home, of Ohio, more than anything. And that is definitely something that I feel. Um, So I I want to know if you could talk a little bit about Cleveland and the love that you found for it, even though you've now left it and what that's like to have that past in a very specific location. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for naming it as a love letter. That makes me very happy because I did feel very a lot of tenderness when I was writing the book, certainly for the land. And this relates to the, how I answered the question about what the Midwest is, because I, I feel really lucky that my early life was in this, I always say rural-ish, because we were so close to the city. We were like, it was we were just the beginning of rural land, but we could also get to the city pretty quickly. But I experienced this sort of, again, this sort of stereotypes of we had a big we had a crick in the backyard in the woods and, you know, we'd run around barefoot and it was just everything you would assume about like, again, the sort of like white trash hillbilly nature kids. That's, that's what I experienced, but it was beautiful. And, and I, as an adult, there were parts of my life as an adult where I really 
just was romanticized cities because I didn't grow up in a big city. And so, you know, wanted to go to New York or Chicago, ended up living in Boston for a bit. And then just having these moments when I just like missed nature and the woods and the creek and just like all of this stuff. So I feel really lucky for having experienced that. But then at the same time, again, because Cleveland proper was so close, uh, I also had a taste of, again, what I mentioned at the beginning of the, the sort of pocket of like very rich culture. And there was this street technically in Cleveland Heights. So it sort of would be like the Brooklyn to New York. Like, so just like a close by city that might as well be Cleveland. And there was a strip called Coventry road. And it was just every, you know, it was a dream for somebody who a preteen who felt pulled to sort of alternative and then later punk. It was just like every tattoo shop, vegan cafes before people knew what veganism was like, you know, weed before I knew what weed smelled like, but I definitely smelled it a lot back then, um, on that street. Um, the sort of like indie art house movie theater Coventry has been gentrified a lot. So if you go back there, it, it certainly doesn't have that sort of romance to it anymore, which kind of breaks my heart, but there's still these little spaces that I go back and I'm like, Oh, I feel so lucky that, that I have that. And so those two, the, like those spaces were so, so important to me, like the ruralness, but then also the sort of like rich artistic cultural haven. Um, and then that was all juxtaposed literally, like we would drive from my rural home to Coventry and pass the, the smokestacks and the steel mills. And so I also sort of, without ever sort of naming or thinking about it until much later in my life when I became a Marxist who was obsessed with the labor movement and labor and working conditions and all these things. Never really, you know, said that out loud, but but really had these like deep intrinsic lessons about about labor and about what it means to live in an industrial city where people get laid off and where people keep going anyway. And this is another moment that I kind of contradict myself because I, I've done a couple interviews where I like state right up front, like there is, there is no monolithic Rust Belt. Like I'm telling one particular story. One reason I want to do that is to like name, you know, really radical left thinking, even in white trash communities that people assume are Trump communities. And, you know, it's naming all those specificities. But then at the same time, I start to get really romantic about the resilience of people in the Rust Belt, which is a little bit monolithic and, and overgeneralizing and sweeping. But I, but I do, um, I do think it's kind of undeniable to think about, um, a city like Cleveland, which literally it's, you know, our river has caught on fire. We, so many people lost jobs. You know, it's not been, no, it's made, it's a, it's the butt of jokes. Like there's something like Cleveland, at least it's not Detroit is like a thing that people say, like, just like mean nasty comments. There was actually Cleveland was just featured on the bachelor series. And it was like, I saw that. The, the joke of Twitter was like how hilarious and unfortunate that these women had to like go to Cleveland for their bachelor trip. So it's, you know, it's been the butt of a joke. And yet I grew up with what I feel like was deep resilience in the face of all that and people who found ways to make it work anyway. Yeah. So I feel really those are sort of all the components that we're kind of operating. I think one of the things about growing up somewhere and then leaving it, you can kind of turn around and look at it from an outsider's point of view and to be able to see that. So though, so for where I grew up in Southern Ohio, I love it so much. Like when I see the, the Ohio Hills, like that is, that is home to me. But when I go back, I'm reminded why I don't live there anymore mm -hmm. um, and how I don't feel like I fit in there anymore because I don't. Mm -hmm. And the difficulties of, you know, having those two uh, 
contradictory feelings in the same place of loving a place, but also knowing I, I couldn't live there, but still fighting for it and fighting for its space in the wider world. Mm-hmm. It's similar to the class straddler. It's like geography straddler. Like it's like, you know, feeling, never feeling. And, you know, so there's a lot of like great sort of um, critical race theory on this about people who um, feel like they occupy spaces in more than one racial category. But it is that like never feeling like you're fully, fully home because home doesn't feel like home, but anywhere else you go doesn't feel like home. At least that's what I'm, I, I'm, I'm not projecting that onto you, but that's sort of what I'm thinking about as you're saying that, because that's true for me. So I really have been primarily in the Midwest. I, from Cleveland, I went from Cleveland to Chicago for college, and then Chicago to Minneapolis for grad school. And then I had a, about, I think probably about five years in Boston. And I really, there were moments, and I write about this in the book too, where I really thought I was destined to be an East Coaster. I was like, that's where like, yes, I like got a taste of Coventry and arts culture, but I was like, oh, like New York and like any East Coast city, like that's where I belong. And I struggled on the East Coast. Like there was a lot, a lot of things that I warmed to and I really um, appreciated. And now I even miss now that I'm back in Minneapolis. But I will say that again, even, even though I already made the caveat that it's like not a monolith and it is more complex, like there is something there, there are like undeniable energies to, I think, different regions and the East coast energy was just tough for me. And so when my partner and I decided to come back to basically leave Boston, we both were, he works remotely and I was, I was unemployed at the time. And I knew that I was probably going to find adjunct work after, after wherever we made the move. And we picked Minneapolis, which is the Midwest. Yeah. So I'll just say that, that the energy of the Midwest does feel like home more than other regions, even though it's distinct and complex and all these things. I guess the last question I have for you, are there any other Midwestern uh, women writers that you would recommend to our listeners if they want to learn more about the topic? Um, that is a great question. And I feel like, and I know you, I know you ask about books, but I, now I have to think about my Midwest authors. Um, well, I am excited that you're going to have the author of Rust, uh, on, which I didn't know about until I don't, you know, I don't think either of us knew about each other, but we were clearly writing our books around the same time. So I'm really excited to read that. I have a copy. Um, and I'll be excited to listen to that, to that interview. Can I mention a really nice feminist man? Just, can I just, can we have a brief club or is that, is that against the rules? <laughs> oh no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hate to do this, but he's a really good dude. Um, and he's on my same press. So belt press, belt publishing founded by two women. So maybe that is better. His, we all, we were kind of like belt cousins at the same time. Like his book, we were both writing our books at the same time and his just came out. His name is Phil Chrisman and his book is called Midwest Futures. And it's all about the Midwest. Um, I really think you'd like it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, like intellectual history, intellectually a conversational history of the Midwest with like good political critique of it. Um, and so, yeah, he is a dude, but he, his book is coming from Belt, which is woman owned. And another Belt author who is a woman, um, Vivian Gibson just wrote, um, The Children of Mill Creek. This is the first book she's ever written. She is retired, uh, an African-American woman from, woman from St. Louis who's writing about this town that she grew up in that was literally razed to the ground and completely destroyed and sort of what it's like to, to have experienced that. And she's just amazing. So definitely shout out to Vivian. And let's see of other things I read recently. I mean, she doesn't necessarily write about 
the Midwest specifically, but Adrienne Marie Brown is one of my favorite writers and thinkers ever. And she lives in Detroit. And I think that her um, relationship to Detroit's activist community um, and to Detroit itself, I think really informs a lot of her writing. Um, and so I just give a shout out to her, a Michigander. <laughs> well, we're, I mean, I, from, from Ohio, I, I guess that's acceptable, you know, with our, <laughs> right, oh, I know. <laughs> our rivalry going here. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. My partner's actually U of M, U of Michigan um, grad. And I actually kind of don't care, but my mom gives, gives Logan the hardest time about it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rachel, for coming on the podcast and talking all about your book and about Cleveland. And Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is the Skylight Digital Picture Frame. So are you looking for the perfect gift for your mom or loved one? You know, I'm not able to visit my parents or my in-laws as much as I would like to as they live in different states, uh, which is why I love the Skylight Picture Frame. It's touchscreen and you can email photos to it and they appear in seconds so uh, your loved one can see the photo in a matter of moments. You can also preload it so when you give the gift of a Skylight digital picture frame, uh, it will come preloaded with all of the amazing photos that you know that she wants. Uh, in my case, that would be photos of Dylan uh, because we all know who the favorite is in our family. It is no surprise. So Skylight sent me a picture frame for this and I immediately had photos of Dylan on it and very quickly let's just be honest and so now I get to watch as Dylan's face scrolls across the digital picture frame and it brings me so much joy and I know that this is definitely something that my mom would love. Now as a special holiday offer you can get 10% off your purchase of a skylight frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash reading women and enter the code reading. Uh, that's right, you can get 10% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame. Just go to skylightframe.com slash readingwomen and enter the code READING. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash reading. And thanks so much to the Skylight Frame for sponsoring this episode. So thanks to Rachel for chatting with me about her memoir, Rust Belt Femme, uh, which is out from Belt Publishing. Now I'm going to be talking to the author Elise Colette Goldbach, who is the author of Rust, a memoir of steel and grit. And uh, Elise uh, used to be a steel worker at a steel mill in Cleveland. Uh, she received her MFA in nonfiction from the Northeast Ohio Master of Fine Arts program. Her writing has appeared in several different publications, and she is now a professor uh, in Cleveland. So I was very excited to talk to her about her memoir and what it was like being a steel worker. I think those of us who don't work in uh, a steel mill but have heard a lot about it, are, I, you know, I'm curious about how uh, a steel mill works and what is that job like and what was her experience with that, especially being a woman in a male-dominated field. So here is my conversation with Elise Colette Goldbach. Well, Elise, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
So I really enjoyed your memoir. And as soon as I was like about halfway through, I told one of our co-hosts, Jacqueline, that she definitely needed to read it. So she picked it up as well and loved it. So uh, I think it's becoming a reading women favorite for sure. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So your memoir is about working um, at a steel mill in the Rust Belt. So for our listeners who may not be from the United States or not from the area, uh, what is the Rust Belt? I mean, I would. I think that a lot of people have a lot of different answers for that. But um, I, I guess I would say the Rust Belt is kind of a subset of the Midwest that kind of seems to extend maybe from like Buffalo, kind of maybe to about Chicago, maybe a little bit farther west, um, and and kind of just really encapsulates these towns that were built on like steel and industry and manufacturing, um, and and just kind of the, these cities that have like a really proud history of that, like like Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh, things like that. You started working at a steel mill in your late twenties. Uh, what what occurrences happened that you ended up working there? Yeah, it was um, definitely someplace I never expected to land. Uh, I went to, you know, I went to college and I did all of that stuff. Um, and it was just there weren't many jobs available and I, I couldn't seem to get my foot in the door any place. And, you know, I even went to graduate school and then I was kind of overeducated and underqualified for a lot of positions. Um, and so I was working as a house painter just kind of to make ends meet. And it wasn't a very reliable job. Um, you know, it was very seasonal, didn't have health insurance. Um, and a friend of mine worked down in the mill and kind of talked to me about it and showed me his paycheck, told me about the benefits and, um, suggested that I apply. And it just, you know, I kind of lucked out and was able to, to get into the mill. So what kind of work did you do at the steel mill? And I guess a broader question would be like, what happens at a steel mill? I know like they make steel, but I'm not really sure. And I guess until I read your book, like what all of that entailed. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what happened in the steel mill <laughs> other than, okay, steel's made here. And it's actually like this huge process in the steel mill in Cleveland where I work, you know, it's about 950 acres. So it's like, I mean, it's just so expansive. Um, and it's all these different departments. And basically what they do is they take raw iron ore and through various different processes, turn it into like finished, beautiful steel. Um, some of it's galvanized. Um, and, you know, it has to go through all of these different um, steps and stages. You know, it gets turned into like molten iron and then the molten iron goes someplace else and gets turned into molten steel. And the molten steel gets cooled down and then it kind of gets stretched out like spaghetti and then it gets rolled up. And, and, and it's just like all these processes that happen to the steel. And um, during my time there, I did a lot of different jobs. I worked in the finishing department for a lot of the time, which is kind of like the last step before the, the steel goes to customers when it's getting smoothed out and, and kind of perfected. Um, all the little imperfections are getting worked out. So I, I used to like package the steel before it went to customers, but I also, um, I spent some time running like a crane. Um, I also worked down in the furnaces and I would, um, use like a forklift to replenish all of the raw materials that are used in the steel making process. So I, I kind of like ran the gamut of different jobs. And one of the things that was just impressed upon me when I was reading your book is just how dangerous this steel mill is in so many of its different steps as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there's kind of, you know, danger around every corner, even just kind of walking in the buildings. There are always these cranes that are overhead and, you know, they can drop things and, and you don't want to get caught underneath them. And just the, the sheer size of the equipment is just mind boggling. You know, you can feel this 
huge power, like rumbling in your chest, like the noise of it. And, you know, the furnaces are hot. There's noxious gases in some of the places that will kind of um, sprout up without warning. Um, So it's just kind of like you always have to be aware and on your toes. So growing up in southern Ohio, in the region that's part of Appalachia, there was a huge coal refinery plant that was there and closed, I I think, when I was very young. And uh, then we began to see economic decline in, you know, our small town, but Cleveland has such a huge industry. Um, what has that been like recently with the different uh, steel mills and how's that affected Cleveland uh, in recent times? Yeah, I mean, the mill has always had like this history of kind of ups and downs, you know, with the economy. And there was a time in kind of the early 2000s when the mill shut down briefly. And then um, also a little bit after the Great Recession hit and kind of all of everything bottomed out where it closed down just for a short period of time. But it's kind of like kept like kept like chugging slowly along, you know, sometimes limping. Um, and so so it's kind of been able to remain a, a part of the community and, and, you know, a part of the economic landscape. And But luckily, like in Cleveland, um, you know, we've kind of also transitioned to other industries like, you know, um, healthcare and, and insurance are, are a big part of our kind of economic landscape now. So we're, we're feeling the effects of the loss of these manufacturing jobs in, in the city, but we're also... Um, kind of trying to to revitalize ourselves too and and stay on top of kind of forward movement. So I think when a lot of people, they hear about steel mills and blue collar, as we air quotes, work like in the steel mill, I feel like a lot of people have stereotypes in their mind of what that might look like or what people might work at a steel mill. Uh, What stereotypes would you say that you might have had going into it? And what did you learn, you know, having worked there and met these people and become friends with them and become one of them? Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, we all have the idea of like the kind of grizzled old man steel worker who's, you know, a, a staunch conservative and, you know, has a Harley Davidson and, you know, that that type of thing. And, and those people certainly did exist down in the mill. But I, I also learned that it was much more um, diverse group of people. Um, there were definitely people with college degrees, people with master's degrees, um, people who had been, one woman was a, a psychologist before she became a steel worker. And, you know, there were also like younger people, millennials, and, and people with definitely conservative views, but also a lot of liberal views too, um, being in, in Cleveland, which is a more liberal city. Um, so it was kind of just, you know, there, there were definitely some of the stereotypes down there, but everyone really you know, change my perception of, of what it meant to be a steel worker. Cause you know, all these people have such a sense of community and such a sense of family when, when they're down there, um, working in these dangerous jobs and this connection to the union and, and kind of feeling that pride in what they do. And you talk a lot in the book about that pride that they have and a lot of the heritage. And a lot of that comes back to when you're sitting down in together with your coworkers and they tell stories of past people who used to work at the mill, maybe they passed away or there was an accident. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sense of community and heritage that the steelworkers have? Yeah, I mean, I think it is true that like a lot of people um, who work down the mill, the, you know, they have family who works down there or have, you know, fathers or, or brothers who have worked down there. Um, and so I think that there is like an automatic, like natural kind of family connection. And and you kind of are connected to the history of, of other people who have done these jobs before you. And, and there's also kind of this oral history tradition where these stories of, of kind of tragedies in the mill get passed on. Also, I think just 
the history of the union also kind of gets instilled in you when you have a job like that, like the kind of thankfulness for what the union provides, the protections it provides, um, and also kind of a, a general awareness of, of how many people have fought for those benefits over the years and the generations. And I think that, you know, a lot of people spend so much time down in the mill. You know, most people who, who work these jobs are working like mandatory overtime. Sometimes you're like spending more time down at the mill than you are with your own family. You know, you're working night shift. Um, it's just kind of very grueling. And so I think that there's just an, you know, kind of misery love company, maybe a little bit where, where you're in this difficult position and, and you kind of bond with the people who, who can understand what it's like to be down there. Yeah. And that was something that I that was deeply impressed upon me as I was reading your book, how there was this sense of community. And as you got to know your coworkers, how you felt even more connected to the steel mill and like what it does and its past. And it was like, it's its own little cultural center in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it definitely felt when you would go down into the mill because the mill is actually like in a valley um, in the city. And so you would actually go down this big hill and it always felt like you're kind of just stepping into a different world, like maybe stepping back in time a little bit. The landscape was so different. The people were so knitted together. And so um, it, it really, it does kind of change who you are, I think, to be down there a little bit. Like I still, even though I've left the mill, I still like kind of want to go back sometimes. And, and I have this sense of nostalgia when I pass the mill and drive, you know, drive past in my car. And, and it just feels like it, it becomes like a part of your blood a little bit when, when you work down there for a while. You worked in the steel mill as one of the few women that worked there. And I want to make sure to ask you about that. Like, how was your experience unique being a woman working in such a male dominated environment? Yeah, I mean, definitely at first it was a little intimidating. I started out with about 23 other people, and I think only two other people in the class were women, which, I mean, it kind of, you know, sets you up for just being a little, feeling a little out of sorts, I think. Like, as we were learning to do different tasks in the mill, like, you know, you would get the kind of comments from the men, like when I was learning how to drive a forklift, you know, they would be like, oh, yeah, female drivers suck and, you know, things like that. <laughs> and so I think in, in one way, like when you are uh, encountered with that kind of attitude, you, you end up actually like working harder to like prove yourself. And I think in some ways, um, I ended up responding in that way where I was, you know, just kind of put my head down and, and was going to show that I could work just as hard as the men or, or do just as good of a job. There were other times too, though, I think when I, I did try to learn how to stand up for myself a little bit more, um, with just comments or, or people's attitudes. Um, and, and generally more often than not, I found that men were helpful or, res or respectful and, um, generally didn't have a problem with, with women down there. I also found that like women kind of banded together and, and wanted to help each other and, and be supportive of each other, both inside and outside the mill. So you talk a little bit about in your memoir about, you know, you finished your, when you finished your grad degree and then going and, and looking for work after that, how did you come to decide that you wanted to write your experience at the steel mill as a memoir? It took a little while for me to figure out that it was a memoir. I remember the first few days and weeks that I was down in the mill and just kind of working around this 
this huge equipment like that was like nothing I'd ever seen before and and in this just place that was almost like a like a jungle of of you know steel and grit and everything it, you know I wanted to describe that world for people as a writer um I, I thought it was just so foreign to what most people have ever experienced um and then you know kind of as I got to know the people I really wanted to tell their stories as well and then, you know, I, I started working in the mill in the midst of the 2016 elections. And so I felt like I had an important perspective kind of being an industrial worker in the Rust Belt at that time. Um, and so I started writing and I thought it was going to be an, an essay or like a shorter piece. And it just kind of kept growing and growing. And, and so I decided to kind of just, you know, let it let it get bigger and, and see where it went and ended up writing a memoir, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad that you did because... As someone from a working class background from, you know, rural Ohio, I've been reading a lot of pieces about it, especially since the 2016 election and a lot of memoirs about working class people who may not fit the stereotypes that people from the coast might have about, you know, Appalachian people or Midwestern people. What has been your experience sharing your memoir with other people and what have their reactions been? Yeah, I mean, I think that the reactions have been generally really positive for the coronavirus hit and everything. Um, I was able to do some readings. And a lot of people actually who were former steelworkers or had had family who worked in the industry um, kind of showed up to these readings um, after hearing about the book. And I think that they were really excited to see this aspect of their experience and this aspect of their history kind of reflected um, in a way, you know, that could, could maybe reach a broader audience and to understand that sometimes the mill, we, we look at the mill and, and all these industrial jobs as like being all about economics and being all about like, oh, it's just about the loss of jobs. That's why people are so sad to see these things go. But really, it is it is a part of the history. It is a part of the identity and the culture. It's about like, you know, what what people kind of latch on to. I think it defines um, various communities. And I think that sometimes we get so caught up in the economics that we lose sight of that kind of really personal connection, um, that individual connection that people have to these spaces. I, I definitely think so as well. Uh, so you've talked a little bit about how local people responded, which I think is always fascinating to see, you know, how people feel about their own like city being reflected in a book. But did you have any interviews or interactions with people who weren't from Cleveland uh, when talking about your memoir? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I think that all those people have been just very interested to see, you know, what goes on in a steel mill, kind of what the landscape is like, what the people are like. Um, and I think that also just kind of being able to see the, the more kind of human perspective on things, um, just, you know, seeing these people as individuals who are just, you know, as varied and different as, as anyone else, um, I think has been good for a lot of readers out, outside of the Rust Belt and outside of the area. And, you know, also, I think, in the book, I try to explore the ways in which sometimes we make assumptions based on our political beliefs or, or where we're from. And, and sometimes, you know, those assumptions aren't as, as full as in, encapsulating as they need to be. And sometimes we can be surprised about what people are really like. Yeah, that's always something interesting. You know, when I moved down to the South, I now live in South Carolina. People do not know, like, what to make of that very much. And so whenever I work in books, they're always like, oh, wait you live in the South? Why are you there? Like, what are you doing? Have you had any responses like that? Like people asking you, like, why Cleveland? Why are you there? Besides the fact, I mean, that you're from around the area. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have a lot of people ask me like if I, if I still live there, you know, if, if, you know, in Cleveland in particular, I think that we have a lot of people who who start out in Cleveland, especially like in music and stuff, and then they go elsewhere, you know, and that's kind of the, (laughs) the, the narrative. Yeah. And, and so I think that sometimes people are surprised that I, I do stay, I am still in Cleveland and, and plan to stay here. So what about the city for you? Um, in addition to being home, what about it is special for you? I was talking a little bit with Rachel earlier in this episode, and, and she now lives in Minneapolis. So her perspective is as someone who grew up there and then moved away. But for you as someone who still lives there, uh, what is special about Cleveland for you? Um, I think that Cle- Cleveland has a lot of character and a lot of this like underdog grit that, that kind of comes with it. I think that, you know, we, we know that we're not like, we're not, New York and we're not Los Angeles or anything like that. And we're kind of like, that's fine. We don't want to be because we're, you know, we're good at our own thing. (laughs) I know that we, you know, have always been kind of like, we always feel like we're second best at things, but we like kind of keep just sailing forth and like put our heads down and, and, you know, we're going to kind of do our own thing. And, you know, I think it's just like that kind of general spirit. I think there's also a lot of authenticity in the city. I think that there's a lot of pride in the things that we do have, um, you know, like the, the art museum and the, Cleveland Clinic and the Cleveland Orchestra and things like that. Um, I think it makes those those gems stand out even a little more. Um, and and so I think generally it's though that it's that that underdog grit that I really love. Yeah, and you could really see that reflected in your in your book as we got to know the different people uh, that you worked with. One of the things that I have noticed since the 2016 election, in particular, uh, which you cover a lot in your book, is just how people have responded to certain areas of the country. And there's been a lot of like parachute journalism of people going in and like, you know, talking to coal miners in West Virginia or different things like that. But really, people haven't been asking the working class people themselves to tell their own stories. So for you, why is it so important for blue collar workers, for, you know, working class people, for people from the Midwest to tell their own stories? Yeah, I think I I noticed the same thing in the wake of the 2016 election that, you know, and I I felt like that was kind of, you know, people would come in and be like, oh, yeah, I've solved the Rust Belt. And I felt like it was never really getting to the core of the problem. And I think that it's important to hear these stories, both so that we understand that, you know, the Rust Belt is actually more diverse and more um, varied than sometimes we, we like to think. And I think that it also humanizes uh, people, uh, you know, a, a group of people that sometimes maybe gets the, the short end of the stick. You know, the more that we tell these stories, I think, and explore them, um, I think that the more we can understand part of the divides that I think caused the 2016 election and, and has kind of led to this um, real political animosity that we're, we're seeing now. Uh, we've talked a lot about own voices writers in this conversation. Uh, what are some Midwestern women writers that you would like to recommend to our listeners? I know that you um, have interviewed someone who was published by Rust Belt Chic, um, and so I would definitely recommend like Anne Trubeck. Um, and um, I mean, and I don't know how much like Sarah Smarsh. I think kind of falls in like a Midwestern kind of writer, but maybe not Rust Belt. I agree. I love Sarah Smarsh and her podcast is amazing. Yval, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about the Rust Belt with me. And uh, I hope everyone goes out and buys a copy of your book. All right. Thank you so much.
So, so far, uh, we've talked to uh, Rachel about her experience growing up in working class Cleveland area. And then we talked to Elise about her experience uh, working in the steel mills and what that was like. Uh, But now we're going to talk to Sachi, our very own Sachi, about what it's like to grow up in the Cleveland, greater Cleveland area and what her experience has been like being a bookish person that lives in Northeast Ohio. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having me on for this special episode. Yeah. This might seem kind of random, like me saying, hey, Sachi, guess I'm doing an episode (laughs) about Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, any chance to talk about my city where I live, I'll take it because there's not a lot of like books or movies or anything featuring my area. So the any chance to talk it up and talk about why I love living here is a good opportunity that I will take. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So what are some of your favorite parts about living in Northeast Ohio? Sure. Yeah. So for those who might not know me, I live in the Northeast Ohio area, and obviously I'm only really speaking to that experience and not, I'm sure, very different than some of the other um, segments in this episode or even folks you know, in, the, in other parts of the Midwest. I have always kind of lived in suburbia uh, in the Midwest, so I kind of grew up all over because my dad was in the military, but I've been in Ohio ever since uh, fifth grade, and so always kind of lived in suburbs of the Cleveland. Cleveland area, anywhere between like 30 and 40 minutes away from uh, the heart of the city downtown. Some of my favorite parts about living in Northeast Ohio is the, the biggest thing is that it's very affordable and very accessible. And when I say accessible, I mean from like you know, it's very easy to drive in and out, you know, find parking and things like that. And driving into the city is different than if you're driving into Chicago or even other really like large Midwestern cities. And obviously just the housing and food and entertainment is very, very affordable here. I lived in San Francisco for a year for my job. And uh, when I came back to Ohio, I was like, wait, I can get like a dinner for two and get drinks and have an appetizer with my husband for like less than a hundred dollars. This is wonderful. Like the, the the drink prices alone in major cities are like a full dinner here in in Ohio. So Michael Simon, the you know Food Network <laughs> chef, is from Cleveland and has multiple restaurants. <laughs> Shout out to Lola and Lolita because I love those places. They're so good. Also, I feel like. Uh, the Midwestern hospitality is something that I feel at least in Cleveland, there's still like straight up rude people. Uh, Like, let's be serious. There's like rude people everywhere, but I will say that I feel like people here are generally, you know, nicer than other areas of the country. Like sometimes I get on a flight and I am what I act as what I think is just normal politeness and like helping people like put away their trash or whatever, or, you know, you know, who knows sparking nice, like small talk or conversation. And people are like, you know, you're so nice. They're like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Ohio. And this is how people normally act. Like we're just nice people, I guess, and stuff. So I feel like Midwestern hospitality is kind of a real thing. Warm and fuzzy people here, not like super mean and grumpy or anything. And we also, if you're a sports fan, we got sports. <laughs> we have Cleveland specifically. We have basketball, baseball, and football all in the same downtown area. And we have 
you know, you know, Akron, which is just outside of Cleveland is home to LeBron James, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. So <laughs> like if, if that doesn't sell it for you, I don't know what else does. He brought us a championship after a 52 year drought. And I just love the man to death. We also, for entertainment, have one of the largest amusement parks in the country, and that's Cedar Point. Cedar Point is the best. Yeah. The best. If you love roller coasters and thrills and all kinds of stuff, and it is just awesome. We have so many roller coasters. People come in from around the world. Like, you'll see, you'll hear, like, people from different countries, like, speaking different languages because, like, it's a world-renowned attraction. My family in Japan had heard about Cedar Point, and they were so excited to go there. Wow. (laughs) So... (laughs) We also get all four seasons, which I really missed when I lived in California, not having fall and spring and to an extent winter, because I have a very tumultuous relationship with snow and winter, which is horrible here. (laughs) But I will say we get every season and the landscapes here are beautiful. We don't have mountains or anything. So like I get like if you are into rock climbing or whatever, like probably can't satisfy you there, but we do have wonderful hiking. We have really great cliffs and things like that. Those are kind of my favorite parts about living in Northeast Ohio. So we've talked about a lot about, you know, why I love Ohio, why you love Ohio, but what are some misconceptions about the Midwest that you might see in a more specific bookish content, whether in the books that you read or just um, ideas that people have about Ohio in general that you would like to like, I don't know, set to right. Debunk. (laughs) Yes. I got, I got all kinds of fun misconceptions, not fun, not fun. I have misconceptions for you, Kendra, (laughs) Um, because there are a lot of common misconceptions. So if you've never been to Ohio or you've never met anyone from the Northeast Ohio or Ohio region or even the Midwest, here are some things that (laughs) you can learn and never mention to someone in this area. (laughs) Okay. So the first one and the biggest one, like when I asked my husband this too, this was the first thing that like came to both of our minds. Um, He's someone who's born and raised in Northeast Ohio. Biggest, in my opinion, misconception is that we're all rural farm town people and that there's no major cities in Ohio. (laughs) This is the, I, I will meet people from when I'm on vacation and they're like, Oh, Ohio, like, do you live on a corn farm? And I'm like, no, I don't live on a corn farm. I've never worked on a farm. It's just like so offensive to me. <laughs> um, and so like some of the major cities, hopefully people know this already are Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. There's a lot of other big cities like Akron that I mentioned, but those are kind of the main ones. And you know, a big, another the kind of second common misconception is that there's like, there's no liberal people here. They're all like super conservative old white people. And in those cities specifically, it's, it's similar to the rest of the country where, you know, a lot of cities are kind of blue areas and rural areas are red. Um, we have that here too. Like it's not all red. We used to be a swing state. Um, so, uh, definitely has swung a little bit more red in the later years. But um, when you look at polls and election results, like usually the the Columbus and Cleveland areas specifically are very, very blue. And that I feel like is something that, 
you know, when I tell people that I'm not conservative and identify as a Democrat and liberal, like very, people are very surprised. There are, there are people like that out here. <laughs> so my husband's whole family, like are very, you know, historically very, very uh, liberal. So we do exist. Uh, we're not all farmers or industrial workers either. Like, you know, we have um, examples, like you had said, of different segments of people who work like in the steel yards and stuff like that. But like, I personally have never had any experience in that or anything like that. Um, I work in manufacturing, so it's, it's kind of similar, but yeah, it, definitely not all farmers <laughs> for sure. Another common misconception is that there's no diversity or people of color, um, which is definitely not the case. It, I would say that, you know, especially in the suburbs, things are, are most more uh, predominantly white, but that doesn't mean that there are no people of color. And I feel like usually people of color and like people like myself who are, you know, biracial often get erased from the narrative when it comes to living in the Midwest or, or Ohio specifically. Um, and we are here. <laughs> like we are alive and well. There is diversity. I'm just very, very tired of, of people saying that, you know, all the diversity is only on the coast. Cause that's definitely not the case. Yeah. And you shouldn't have to just fight to prove that you exist yeah. before you even talk about your own life experience. Like yeah. that's just exhausting. Yeah. It's really, really tough. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when, when we talk about authors and stuff later, but that that's always been my experience. I've, I've hardly seen representation, you know, from my aspect of being Asian American and being biracial specifically, things have gotten a lot better in recent years with Asian American literature and showing protagonists that, that are biracial, but even then to take it a step further to, you know, see representation of Asian Americans or even biracial Asian Americans in Ohio specifically is so tough that like, I feel like I've never fully represented ever when it comes to literature and such that it's just, yeah, it's hard to explain to people that, you know, it shouldn't be this hard to find a character that you identify with when there have been years and years of, of folks that, you know, are, have a normal, normal quote unquote majority type, um, and a set of, of, uh, demographics, I guess is what I'm trying to say that have been represented for many, many years. It's like hard for some people to, to imagine. Another common misconception is that there's nothing to do here. <laughs> I think you solved that. <laughs> there are things to do. Please see previous section. <laughs> there are plenty of things to uh, do and see and eat and and things like that here. Um, you know the the fact that people um, I, I commonly see in literature um, specifically that you know Ohio is a place to drive through on a road trip when you're trying to go from one coast to the other, and people gloss over it or they say like, we drove through Ohio and I'm glad we didn't stop. It was nothing special, <laughs> like extremely offensive. Like, and I've seen this in multiple books and multiple books, like even re in recent, um, releases, I'll get an arc of a book and see something that says like, Oh yeah, you know, we passed through Cleveland and the skyline was just, a you know, foggy, boring mass. And I'm glad we didn't stop. And I always mark those arcs and I check the finished copy to see if that comment still stays it always does. And it just like, I feel like it's so offensive and like people on the coast that don't flag it as something that could be, you know, offensive to other, you know, people who live there. Cause 
I'm assuming most people haven't actually stayed in, in or visited Cleveland, uh, specifically for, for, for my area, um, speaking from that experience. But like, I just feel like unless you actually have stayed here and experienced the culture to its fullest, don't say that it's not worth stopping till unless you've actually done it. <laughs> so I think so many people, because they don't read about it and they don't actually pay attention to other areas, they think it's true. Mm-hmm. And that's why they don't flag it because they're like, right. oh, why should they stop? But this is true that it's, you know, ugly and there's nothing there except poverty and, mm-hmm. you know, addiction and who knows what else. And right. that's just what even. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you do stop here, see point number one that I said, it's extremely affordable to stay here for a couple days and like experience really great food. We have a really great theater scene. Playhouse Square specifically in Cleveland is has fantastic shows that are high quality and extremely affordable. So it's like, even if you, if you are taking a road trip and you do, you know, cross into Ohio, like stay in Cleveland for a night, like you might actually really love it. And you're not going to spend a lot of money to spend time here. (laughs) One other or two other things that I have that are kind of smaller. Um, one common, another common misconception is that in my opinion, at least that no one is like cultured or educated here, which like people think that we're all Hicktown people who, you know, graduated high school and never went to college, which is so not the case. I work in a company, uh, in finance, obviously, like I've said before, and like there are many people on, you know, in my, uh, group specifically in the finance area that have multiple degrees, they have multiple certifications, like there, there is no lack of education or even continuing education past your, your bachelor's. There's a ton of that here. And we have some really reputable colleges as well, like the Ohio State University in Columbus. Uh, you know, people love our football there and our band and stuff like that. But it's also a really, really great um, university. Yeah. And I was, as you're talking, I was thinking also like, most people think Ohio is like this monolith of a singular mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. when in reality, there are so many different kinds of culture. Oh, yes. 100%. Uh, running throughout Ohio. Ohio is a pretty big state in Ohio, period. Uh, and, you know, and I feel like Cleveland in particular is just so full of culture and uh, things to do. I mean, Cedar Point for me, that's that clinches it. It's my favorite. <laughs> and. It is so wonderful. My one thing that like really upset me when I was like getting to know my husband is that he doesn't like roller coasters. So like I haven't gone to Cedar Point in a long time because I'm not going to ride the rides like by myself. But I will say I absolutely loved it growing up. And I told Austin like when we have like children eventually, if that's in the cards for us, I was like, we're going to Cedar Point. Our kids are going to ride roller coasters because this is so important (laughs) to me. (laughs) So we talked a little bit uh, before we started recording about authors and books from Ohio that a lot of people are surprised, might be surprised, are from the area where you were from. Yeah. So um, I jotted down three of my kind of initial ones that popped into my brain. I'm sure there are a ton more um, from my area in Ohio, but the biggest ones that always stick out to me that like people are like, oh, really? Like they're from where you live? And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Um, The biggest one is the Toni Morrison. 
She is from Lorraine, mm-hmm. Ohio. So Lorraine is kind of a, a Western suburb of, of Cleveland. She is widely celebrated um, in Lorraine. And after she passed, I think they were looking to get a Toni Morrison day um, on the calendar uh, to be recognized in the state. I've read, you know, a lot of people try to like mislabel her as like not being from the Midwest. And she's like, no, like from, from the Midwest, I'm from Ohio. Um, and you know, when I found out that she was from my area, I was just like, I, you, I would have never gotten that from any, any of the like articles or, um, all the praise that she's gotten. I found out when she passed that, you know, Cleveland or Ohio native, you know, is, is the, the town is looking to, to declare Tony Morrison day. I was like, I wait, she's from Lorraine. And I like did all this Googling. I was like, Oh my gosh, how long I've been on bookstagram for how long? And I didn't even know that Tony Morrison was from Cleveland. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, how has this happened? Um, so I felt like a really bad Ohioan. (laughs) (laughs) That, that one's huge. I think like that is just a prime example of like, Talent is not bound to one specific area. You know, you can have greatness all over the country, including the Midwest. Another one for me is Celeste Ng. So she is from uh, Shaker Heights. I think she was, I think, born, I think, in Pittsburgh, but she lived most of her life in Shaker Heights, Ohio. When I referred to representation um, previously in literature, um, Celeste Ng's Little Fires Everywhere was the first time that I like fully saw myself kind of realized or represented as, you know, having a character or characters and an author that were Asian American from specifically the Northeast Ohio area. Shaker Heights is very close to where I live. That is what really sparked my interest in reading more women, women of color and reading more Asian titles because I, I was like, wait, there is stuff that exists that have, you know, Asian American or biracial or even Asian American Midwesterners like out there and sparked my love for those types of titles and to get like a bookstagram and be involved in the bookish community. Cause I was like, I have stuff to talk about now. There are things like I'm being represented, um, which wasn't the case growing up. Um, I, there's a lot of Asian American people will tell you that growing up, you know, we had Claudia Kishi and from the babysitters club and that was pretty much it. So that was like a huge, huge thing for me to, to see, um, an author. And I, I immediately after reading little fires, I very, very shortly after read everything I never told you, which was her first book. And I love that one even more. Yeah. It's my favorite too. It's so good. And yeah. like, if you haven't read it, like, please read it. It's so good. It's, <laughs> it's set, I think primarily in Toledo, I believe, which is also another place in Ohio <laughs> features a family, a biracial family. So I, on a different level as well, you know, not only Asian American, but biracial children in Ohio. I just like identified so much with that book. It, it is sad. <laughs> so disclaimer there, not that the sunniest of, of books, um, or anything like that, but an incredible read, an incredible author. I love Celeste Ng, and she's from my area. Last one I, I put is Phoebe Robinson. Uh, she's a comedian, and she has two books that are kind of more humor-related um, memoirs and essays, and she is from Cleveland. <laughs> so, so if you've seen... Um, or heard of like two dope queens. They have HBO specials and a podcast. Um, and I've also seen uh, stand up specials with Phoebe specifically. Like she talks about, especially in one of her books, like she talks about being from Cleveland and like um, some of some of the common misconceptions from Cleveland as well and things like that. She's she's uh, often commented about being from the Midwest and, and such in interviews and everything. So 
love her personally. She's hilarious, but I also am very proud that she's from Cleveland um, and wanted to highlight um, some of her books as some really humorous things. So if you, if, you know, we're in quarantine right now. So if you're looking for something really fun, really humorous um, from a woman of color uh, from Cleveland, definitely check out Phoebe Robinson's uh, two books. So those are kind of the three that I wanted to highlight women of color specifically since, you know, a lot of people think that we don't exist out here. <laughs> we do. And there is literature. Um, so wanted to shout out those three women specifically because um, I love their stuff. Yeah. And there's, there's so many, like you said, great talent from Ohio. And mm-hmm. I think people just kind of need to take the time to slow down and look, to mm-hmm. really look and mm-hmm. to see that Ohio has so many different kinds of literature and not just Ohio, that a lot of states mm-hmm. that people might consider flyover, air quotes, totally, states, yeah. have oh, yeah. <laughs> a rich and deep cultural history that's worth reading about. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that moving forward that especially, you know, beginning with my study of the South and Appalachia and Mm -hmm. learning about my new home, learning about the home I previously had. And I, you know, I've realized pretty quickly is that not, it's not just, you know, my areas, it's Mm -hmm. the entire United States in between the coasts is often very much misunderstood and underrepresented. Yep. So yeah. Yay for Ohio. Yay Yay for Toni Morrison Celestine. I mean, Come on. I know. Powerhouses, right? That lineup. You can't you can't beat it. I you know. know. LeBron James and LeBron James, Michael Tony Simon, <laughs> all kinds of really great uh, uh Neil Armstrong was from Ohio. You oh. know, like space walked on the moon, like Oh my word. And I'm just like, Roy Rogers is from my part of yeah. Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people from Ohio. It's big state. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Sachi, for sharing your love of Ohio. It's It's been great to talk to you about it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Kendra. I would like to thank my fellow Ohioans, Rachel Angelie, Elise Collette-Goldbach, and Sachi Argabright for talking to me today. Uh, definitely go check out their social media links and their websites, which will all be in our show notes. And also check out our show notes for links to go buy copies of Rust Belt Femme and Rust from bookshop.org. We now have a storefront there, so definitely go check that out. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. Join us next time where Sachi and I will be talking about nonfiction titles for Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. In the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Reading Woman. And thanks for listening.